Let's open the precious word of God again to Malachi chapter 2. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to them that trust in him. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And we have some words of God before us. Lesson number four from the prophet Malachi. I trust that you have read it so that you remember from last evening that the first nine verses describe the faithless, foolish, wicked, profane ministers, the priests and prophets of Israel in Malachi's time, and God's condemnation of them and promise to curse them, that he had made them contemptible and base. Beginning at verse 10, and I don't care about the paragraph marks in your Bible, my precious Oxford has a paragraph mark at verse 11, indicating that verse 10 goes with the first nine verses. That proves that paragraph marks are not inspired. You say, are you overriding a paragraph note that the Oxford people put in your Bible? I sure am. It's a ridiculous paragraph mark because the second lesson starts with verse 10 and runs through verse 16. I'll allow them the one at verse 17 since that 17th verse is separate and provides the fifth lesson of the book. Verse 11, I mean verse 10. See what that paragraph mark does to me? Verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Hath not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? This next lesson is introduced by appeal to your conscience toward God and appeal to your conscience toward one another. Having rebuked the priests for their wickedness, Malachi now rebukes Judah for their sins, and it's their marital sins that he focuses on. This is a new lesson by the form of that tenth verse compared to the previous nine. By its application in it to every man, it says, why do we deal treacherously every man? It's not just the priests. And it mentions the covenant of our fathers, referring to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so forth, not just the covenant of Levi. It's very different in this 10th verse than the first nine verses. You can ignore a paragraph mark at verse 11 if you have one. The treachery. Here's another reason why. Because it's got the word treacherously here in verse 10, and it uses it four more times in the remainder of this chapter, because the word treachery is used five times to describe not taking care of your spouse the way God expects you to, the way you led them to believe that you would take care of them, the way that everyone else that's normal and knows how to love their spouse treats their spouse. You're not doing that. Thus, you are treacherous. You are guilty of perfidy. You are disloyal. You are a traitor. You're treasonous because you have betrayed your spouse under this word treachery. And it's five times there, and we do not want to neglect that word because that's how God looks at our marriages when we don't keep them the way that we should. Now the sins in Malachi 2, 10 through 16, are very serious. 
the treachery here is that these men were marrying pagan wives and adding them to their home, practicing polygamy, or divorcing their Jewish wife because now she had aged a little bit after having some children and they were bringing pagan babes into their bed. Oh, the Lord's going to take notice of the fact that this is the wife of thy youth. If she is the wife of thy youth, then how old was she when he married her? She was in her youth. And he points that up because God recognizes everything there is about marriage. Marriage is not an invention of men. God looked on Adam and knew exactly what would complement him the best. And while wives should compliment their husbands with an I, that means to say nice things to them, compliment with an E is, she fit him and was meat for him. A help, meat for Adam. God is a master of it. I love to think about Adam waking up with a sore side, which he forgot in one moment of time when he laid eyes on the most beautiful woman that it's ever been on this earth. And she didn't have a stitch of clothes on her, and he would have given her the perfect combination of shyness and boldness. It worked out perfectly in minutes. Oh, Lord, you're great, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. Everything God made was good and very good in the beginning, and we want to believe that. One of the weightiest passages of Scripture about marriage is found in Genesis chapter 2, and you should never slight it just because it's the creation ordinance, because Malachi is going to appeal to it, Jesus appealed to it, and we should never forget it. One man, one woman, one life is the general rule. And it's what God refers to when He gets on the subject of marriage, as we'll see as we go forward. Marrying a pagan in a case like what I just described to you was an abomination for two reasons. Because it's called an abomination in verse 11. It's treachery and it's abomination. And it was an abomination for two reasons. It violated God's law about who you could marry. So it was an abomination to him because by marrying a pagan woman that worships some other God, you are involving yourself in the worship of that God by marrying her. You should have been out destroying her nation, tearing down her idols, and converting her or killing her. That's what Israel was supposed to do with the Canaanites. The second reason is it harmed the Jewish wife who suffered because of what these men were doing. The poor Jewish wife who's given her husband five years, 20 years, and all of a sudden he's divorcing her or adding to his home a pagan wife. And the Lord sees that. The Lord sees the part of the sin that's against him, and the Lord sees the part of the sin that is against your spouse. And it works both ways, though this passage for this time, is going to be directed against the men for the way they were treating their wives. Before I let you hear the word amen, I'll remind you a few things that wives owe their husbands. And for every woman that's intelligent enough to understand what the Bible is saying, and for every woman that is convicted enough to want to please God, she's going to understand everything in here in reverse. She's going to remember that she was made for her husband. Her husband was not made for her. It is a dual standard. It is a double standard. It is taught throughout the Bible. And she's going to remember all that as we turn through these verses. 
She's not going to be thinking, I'm glad that Malachi is pounding my husband. She is going to know that it's pounding her harder because she's able to recognize that she owes her husband more than her husband owes her. She was made for him. He wasn't made for her. This is a man's world. You're just an addition, ladies. And your addition is to help the men that you're married to. But enough on that. Let's go forward and see what the Word of God has to say to us. These are His words. And there's a question. Have we not all one Father? Hath not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? God was the Father and God was the Creator of Israel by His choice of them to be His people. Here's how it sounds in Isaiah 63 and verse 16. Doubtless, the prophet speaks for Israel to God, Doubtless thou art our father, though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledge us not. Thou, O Lord, art our father, our redeemer, thy name is from everlasting. Notice how the prophet says it's not Abraham, and it's not Jacob, and it's not Isaac in between the two of them. It's God as our Father. So let's keep that in mind. The appeal here by the prophet is, you Jewish men, how can you be treating your wives this way who are the sisters of your brothers, who are the daughters of your brothers, when God's made us all and we're part of one family and one nation, God's our Creator and God's our Father, isn't there some emotional impact on you for defrauding your brothers by treating their sisters this way, by defrauding your brothers by treating their daughters this way, by defrauding your brothers by treating their nieces this way. You should extend your marriage relationship out to everyone that sees it and beholds it and is affected by it. And so part of this lesson is that when you marry someone, you're not just marrying one person. You're marrying the family. Not, not in the sense that you go to their family reunions, but the way you treat that spouse of yours impacts the whole family. Because brothers care about their sisters. Fathers care about their daughters. Uncles care about their nieces. Grandfathers care about their granddaughters. And when you mistreat a daughter, or you mistreat a son, a, a, a husband mistreating his wife, or a wife mistreating her husband, it impacts all those different people. And if you had a conscience... And if you had a heart, you would be thinking about all the hurt feelings beyond just your spouse that you are creating by mistreating them. And so the appeal starts off with, it's treachery against a brother. And then it says, by profaning the covenant of our fathers. And the covenant of the fathers is their commitment not to marry foreigners. Holding your hand here at Malachi 2... I hope that you all know this one, so I shouldn't have to read very far. But all in Exodus chapter 34, beginning at verse 10. And God said, Behold, I make a covenant, Exodus 34, 10, before all thy people, I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation. And all the people among which thou art shall see the work of the Lord. For it is a terrible thing that I will do with thee. Observe thou that which I command thee this day. Behold, this is Exodus 34, 11. 
I drive out before thee the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Take heed to thyself, lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land whither thou goest, lest it be for a snare in the midst of thee. But ye shall destroy their altars, break their images, and cut down their groves, for thou shalt worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they go a-whoring after their gods, and do sacrifice unto their gods, and one call thee, and thou eat of his sacrifice, and thou take of their daughters unto thy sons, and their daughters go a-whoring after their gods, and make thy sons go a-whoring after their gods. Amen and amen. One passage of Scripture, that when you get into the land of Canaan, and I drive out all these nations before you, and I give you the power and the might to be able to do it, drive them out! Destroy every vestige of their religious worship, and do not make a covenant with them to have mercy upon them, and do not make a covenant with them for intermarriage. Do not make affinity with those people. Because they're going to lead you astray. It should be one of the most fearful things in our hearts and in our minds that can happen among us is our children marry unbelievers, marry carnal Christians, do not marry in the Lord as we understand the words, in the Lord. When we say in the Lord, we don't mean that somebody falls into the 2.2 billion Christians that the Almanac says are in the world today. If you can handle me rounding off numbers of the 2.2 billion Christians in the world today, 2.2 billion don't qualify. Right. You say, that's extreme. Well, you just don't know what a billion is. I can't put it in percentages for you because a billion is too big of a number. So let's just be, let's just be honest. Out of 2.2 billion, no one qualifies. That's the generalization we have to make because wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction and straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life and there be few, very few that be found therein. That's right. And those are the only ones we care about that are in the way of righteousness in the straight and narrow way. Treachery, deceit, cheating, Perfidy, violation of faith or betrayal of trust, disloyal, traitorous, the deceitful violation of faith or promise, base breach of faith or betrayal of the trust reposed in a person, treachery, often the profession of faith or friendship in order to deceive or betray. So the Lord takes this word that is very full of betrayal, and treason, and lying, and deceit, and hurt, and harm, and misleading, and abusing, and harming, and hurting, treachery. It involves deceit, because when young people get together, before they marry, the things they promise each other are incredible. Yeah, I'm the only honest one here. Two of us. Oh, we'll promise anything. And so will she. And then when you don't perform up to your promises, you are guilty of treachery. You are a liar. You got into marriage because you have no character. You got into marriage because you have a wicked heart. 
You're a liar. You misled an entire family for trusting their son or their daughter in a marriage with you, and then you did not treat them the way that you promised the person you would treat them, the way you promised the family you would treat them, the way you promised the Lord you would treat them, the way you promised the holy angels you would treat them. And so we have this word treachery five times. Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? It was treachery against brothers by not treating their daughters and sisters as expected. Fornication affects many. Do you know that it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, fornication being the big broad category of sexual sins in the Bible, that you defraud your brother. Now it's talking to men, and it tells them to possess their vessel in honor, and then it says when you commit fornication, you defraud your brother. Let no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter. And the matter of 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 8, is sexual sins. You're defrauding a family. You're defrauding a brother. And that's the appeal right here. So what this verse is doing to us, verse 10, is it's broadening out who you should be thinking about and who you should be looking at when you mistreat your spouse. There's parents involved. There's siblings involved. There's grandparents involved. There's siblings-in-laws involved. And you want to be thinking about all of them. And so the prophet starts out with this appeal. We have one Father. We all say, our Heavenly Father. So we have one Father. We have one God that's created us. How can we be treating each other this way by mistreating the females among us? The emphasis here is not on so much the mistreating of the girl herself, but the effect that it has on the brothers. Because a dad wants his daughter to be treated a certain way. A dad expects his son to be treated a certain way. Especially when we all get together under one God and one Father and promise the same kind of treatment, and we put it in six pages of writing and sign our names to it in the presence of God. You know, we're kind of locked up. And that's how we should be treating our spouses. And if we don't, then it's flat-out treachery. You're a treasonous treater. You have a black heart. You have no character. God is not in you. You're following the course of the devil. It's horrible because it's called profanity, and it is called treachery, and it is called an abomination. And do you want to know the outcome for it? Death. The death is right there in verse 12. The Lord will cut off the man that doeth this. God is going to judge sexual sins. Lord, have mercy upon us and help us. Have we not all one Father? Hath not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? Why are we marrying pagans and disrupting our marriages so much and the effect that that has on the girl's family? Verse 11. There's no paragraph mark there if you have the original. (laughs) Judah hath dealt treacherously. Get that word again. Treacherously. Judah hath dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. And here's the explanation and description of it. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange God. The Jews loved Jehovah God. The Jews loved the Lord. The Jews feared the Lord. The Jews had built the temple, rebuilt the temple here in Jerusalem, and yet they had gone off and married these babes 
of foreign families and foreign nations that did not worship the Lord Jehovah. So God calls it a profaning of the holiness of the Lord, which He loved. You know, there will be men that arise. There will be women that arise in our church that say they love the Lord. And they may very well love the Lord. But then they will go marry someone that doesn't love the Lord. And they have profaned the holiness of the Lord by marrying someone that doesn't love the Lord. When you involve yourself like this, and you come together like this, or like this, however we're using the illustration, we want to marry someone else that loves the Lord, or we're profaning Him by involving ourselves in a marriage where they don't love the Lord like we do. You want to marry higher than yourself spiritually. You want to marry as high as you can spiritually. You want an independent fear of the Lord that stands whether you're there or not. That exists with or without you. That they love the Lord Jesus Christ. Want to live by the Bible. Hate sin. Hate the world. Find it easy to fulfill what the Bible says. that they should, How they should treat their spouse. And so, verse 11, the treachery is mentioned again. And that's toward people. The abomination is toward God. Because they have profaned the holiness of God by marrying someone that worships a different God. You might as well go worship them yourself. Because you're embracing and loving someone that is that profane and that ignorant and that wicked that they're worshiping an idol. Second, by embracing them in a marriage, they will very likely pull you down to worship that God as well. And the Lord sees all of that. And so he calls it as he does here. You know, you also were to read Ezra chapter 9 last evening, which tells you Ezra was a contemporary. Ezra and Nehemiah were basic contemporaries of Malachi. You know that they came back to help finish the project of rebuilding the city and the temple. And Malachi is shortly after that because the priests already have a temple in which to function. But they're close to each other. And so when you were reading Ezra chapter 9, look at that horrible problem. But praise God, there are men like Ezra. And we want men like Ezra. When we pray for ministers, we want ministers that are grieved and rivers of waters run down their eyes and they hate marrying out of the Lord. And when you boys or you girls or you young men or you young women bring someone around us that doesn't show us the visible, obvious fear of the Lord and love of Christ and commitment and dedication to Scripture, we are scared, we are angry. All at once. It overwhelms us. Why you would be so foolish... There are no looks. There is no money that can justify marrying a person that doesn't have an independent fear of the Lord. There's nothing. She'll eat you alive and spit you out and ruin your life. And we have men in this assembly that can testify to that fact. Don't do it. We want the best for you. We want the most loving, reverent, serving, respectful, helpful, great-looking wives that we can find for all you young men. We want princes, noble, caring, faithful, diligent, loyal husbands for you girls. You, If you compromise your love of Christ, your fear of God, your love of God, your dedication to Scripture in your own life, or you allow that without encouraging an improvement in, it in your spouse, you're going to find out how miserable marriage can be. It's so easy to make it better. 
You know how easy it is? It's three quick steps. Remember from whence thou art falling, fallen, repent, and do the first works. Revelation 2.5 tells you how to get first love back real fast. Verse 12, the Lord will cut off the man that doeth this. The master and the scholar, out of the tabernacles of Jacob, and him that offereth an offering unto the Lord of hosts. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter whether you're a teacher and you've got lots of knowledge. It doesn't matter whether you're a student and you don't have much knowledge. The Lord is going to cut you off. It doesn't matter that you're a member of the house of Israel. It doesn't matter that you're a good Israelite. It doesn't matter that the Jews were God's chosen people. God's going to kill you for the kind of conduct described in this chapter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that you make an offering unto the Lord. God's going to kill you. When you come in to make an offering and you come into church and try to pretend that you're religious and try to pretend that you love God, but you are mistreating your spouse, God doesn't care. He doesn't care about your singing. He doesn't care that you're here. He doesn't care that you got 18 inches wide warm of foam rubber on your PU. He doesn't care about any of that. He's going to cut you off. You say that's strict and terrible. Well, here we have a a crime that is terrible. And this was marrying pagan wives and divorcing their Jewish believing wives in order to get at these women. And practicing polygamy by adding them. You know, which would you rather have, ladies? Would you rather get divorced so that you could go marry someone that loved you? Or do you just want to be part of the harem and have your husband bring in three other women that are 20 years younger than you? Hello? Yeah. It's a mess. How did this happen? How in the world could Nebuchadnezzar have destroyed Jerusalem and hauled these people a thousand miles away to Babylon and they get restored by God raising up Cyrus the Persian and they go and do this? Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 19 because of the hardness of your hearts. Do you know that all of our hearts are wild and rebellious and selfish by nature? And when I speak of having a black heart, I am talking about someone that lets out any pride, any selfishness, any wildness, and doesn't conform their life, maritally speaking, to what the Bible says. It's always been the problem. You use the word inventions, brother, for the fact that this man wanted to propose a 10-year renewable marriage license. Solomon concluded after trying a thousand women, he said, Lo, this have I found, that God hath made man upright, but he hath sought out many inventions. Divorce is one of his inventions. Polygamy is one of his inventions. Pornography is one of his inventions. The Lord will cut off the man that doeth this. I hope you can see there that there are several descriptions. It doesn't matter that you're part of the church of God. That would be out of the tabernacles of Jacob. You know, in reading the scriptures, do you remember when Joab found out that his life was probably on the line? What did he do? What did Joab do when he knew that David had made Solomon king and that he had sided with Adonijah, a competing brother? What did Joab... He ran into the temple. He ran into the tabernacle and grabbed... The horns on the altar. He didn't think that he could get killed there. So Benaiah, oh, Benaiah comes back to David and said, Listen, I've got him cornered. He's in the temple hanging on the horns. 
but it's going to be messy. Do it anyway. We can clean it up. Tell the priest to get the hose out. And so Benaiah went and did it. But you know, look what it says in this verse. It doesn't matter where you go. You can't hide from God. He sees everything. He sees everything in your marriage. It's all documented in his book. Every tear of your spouse shed or in the heart is in his bottle. And he will judge. And there's nowhere you can go. And there's no sacrifice you can make to make up for mistreating one of his sons or daughters. The Lord will cut off the man. Verse 13, And this have ye done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with crying out, insomuch that he regardeth not the offering any more, or receiveth it with good will at your hand. Notice that verse 12 ended with this guilty man offering an offering unto the Lord of hosts. He comes to the right place at the right time and he brings a costly offering because he wants to maintain his relationship with the Lord to some degree, but at the same time, he's mistreating his wife by marrying pagan wives. So the Lord goes on to point out, that's not going to save your life, buddy. And the offering, if you want to think about that, I don't receive it because there's a problem in front of it. It's the tears of your wife. And this have ye done again. That doesn't mean that they were guilty of this specific crime before and now they're doing it the second time. This means this is the second part to the problem. The first part is you're offending brothers and God by your profane treachery. The second part is I've got crying women on my hand whose spirits are being broken and crushed by the way they're being treated in the marriage. And this have ye done again. I don't want to go off into the definition of again because it's just too boring and mundane and tedious. This is the second part of the problem. You're sinning against brothers and you're sinning against God. You've created treachery against brothers and you've profaned the holiness of the Lord your God. But there's another problem. I have women crying, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with crying out because their husbands promising them their eternal devotion as all young men do, and as all young women do, young ladies. I will love you forever. Oh, I will love you forever. Yes. Or at least until you hurt me. So there's all these promises. And so the poor girl, she's given birth to several children. She's older. She's put up with him. She's picked up his socks. She's cooked his food, whatever you want to think of that a wife does. She's been loyal to him. And here he goes and marries another woman from another God, from another nation. And of course they had different looks. And of course they had different clothes. And of course they had different methods. And the poor girl is covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with crying out. And there's so much of that going on that God doesn't regard the offering anymore or receiveth it with goodwill at your hand. If he doesn't receive it with goodwill, what's he thinking? You are a hypocrite. And it becomes an abomination to God. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. No longer is he receiving it with goodwill. He has bad will toward it. This is a precious verse. 
The victimized women wept and cried in great torment by this treacherous abomination. God's altar was covered with their tears. Worship or pray ever so well. God looks at the marriage and would not accept the husband's worship. He looks at the marriage before he hears your words. When you pray, the first thing God does is goes and checks on your wife. This isn't a foreign or strange doctrine, is it? Isn't this First Peter chapter 3, 7 as well? Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to honor, to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Right. Now see, in First Peter 3, 7, there's no marrying pagan wives. There's no divorce. There's just this. Husbands, dwell with your wives according to knowledge. Remember what you have been taught and learned about women and treat your wife accordingly, giving honor, not abuse, to the weaker vessel, not criticism to the weaker vessel. She is the weaker vessel. Giving honor unto the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life because in Christ Jesus there is neither male nor female lest your prayers be hindered. Three things. Know women and treat them accordingly. Give honor to her as the weaker vessel, which means you treat her specially. And three, she's an equal heir with you of eternal life. When you get to heaven, there's not going to be one whit of difference between the two of you. And so those three things are very different from Malachi chapter 2. But even those three things, fudged by a Christian, would hinder his praying. Here, it stopped his sacrifices from God receiving them with goodwill. God sees everything. You all know Psalm 56 and verse 8, don't you? That God, that your tears are in God's bottle and in his book. Do you want to read? Do you want to see it? Psalm 56 and verse 8. It's a nice verse. It's a wonderful verse. You know, and, and men cry tears too. They can beat their steering wheel and wonder why their, you know, wife thinks that making love once a month is enough. And so they beat their steering wheels and cry tears as well. Their tears are coming all the way up from their loins, much farther than a woman's tear ducts. I'm trying to be fair all the way around on this whole thing. Psalm 56 and verse 8. Thou tellest my wanderings. That means God counts them. When the Bible uses the word tell, that old verb meant to count them. Thou tellest my wanderings. You count them. Put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? When I cry unto thee, then shall my enemies turn back. This I know, for God is with me. You know, I usually don't add on verse 9, but we, to be honest, verse 9 is pretty good. The two go together so well. So let me read them again to you. Thou tellest my wanderings. You know, when I'm wandering and don't know where to do, what to do and where to go, put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? When I cry unto thee, there's the tears. Then shall my enemies turn back. This I know, for God is with me. When I cry and let the Lord know I'm really in trouble and I'm really scared and I really need help, the Lord's going to come to my aid and my enemies are going to turn back because He's going to roar on my behalf. Psalm 18. Tears. It's good news for the crying to know that the Lord sees and counts and measures and holds them and remembers them, puts them in writing. If your wife is unhappy, and what she says is quite irrelevant, you know, a good wife 
If you were to ask her, are you happy? She's going to say that she is no matter what. A good wife always does that. Unless you really spend some time with her to find out what she's going to tell you. So you don't go by what your wife says when you ask her, are you happy? A wife that just blows off and says that she's not happy, doesn't have a heart, doesn't have a conscience, and I'm sorry that you married her. But a real wife would say, yes, I'm happy. So you've got to ignore what she says. If your wife is unhappy, your life's going to be unhappy is the point I'm trying to get to. If your wife is unhappy, your life is going to be unhappy because there's a God on her side. Note the repeated use of treachery throughout this passage. Staying together for 25 years or 29 years or 37 years is proof of nothing. If the wife has suffered from emotional, verbal, sexual, or physical abuse, the Lord sees it all, for he's a witness of every one of our marriages, even though we don't let anyone else into our home or into our bedroom or into our bed to see any of it. The Lord sees it all. You know, one of the best things that a man can do is to understand and believe and think about the fact that the God of heaven is the most protective father-in-law the world has ever seen. Because when you marry a Christian, you're marrying a sister of Jesus and a daughter of God. God's her father. Have we not all one father? Hath not one God created us? And so when these tears come out, they go in a bottle and they go in a book. So what do you need to do with your spouse before the sun sets today? If ye will hear it, and if ye will lay it to your heart, there can be mercy. Do you know that there was mercy for Nebuchadnezzar? Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, if you'll break off your sins by righteousness, there might be a lengthening of your tranquility. And do you know what the loss of tranquility meant? hands and knees for seven years. There can be a lengthening of your tranquility. Each of you spouses, and guess what? I'm preaching to myself and I'm preaching to my wife. I'm preaching to my children. I'm preaching to their spouses. I'm preaching to every one of you. I'm preaching to those that are not here today. What can you do better? Because God sees everything. And your life is going to reflect the kind of marriage that you have. If your spouse is unhappy and you make their life difficult and you make their life miserable, God is going to make your life difficult and miserable. It is that simple. It is such a wonderful exchange. It is so, it makes such perfectly good sense. It is economical. It is logical. It is scriptural. It is spiritual. I can't find a single fault with it. Because I've married a daughter of God. She's married a, a son of God. And so we have duties toward each other and we should fulfill them as well as we are able. Now, I'm going to take a little tiny trail, just for a moment. And you heard some frustration out of me this morning about how confounded I am by what men have done to the Word of God. I cannot believe God just... I don't always do this. God convicted me to take a look at what these other versions do to Malachi 2, 13, 14, 15, and 16, and it blew my mind at what they do to corrupt the text, let alone the interpretation I was wondering why there were so many ridiculous interpretations of these verses. But let me read to you verse 13. Now, can you look at 13 and follow it as I read to you from, say, the NIV? Is that a popular version? I'm not picking on the cotton patch version. I'm not going after the the word made fresh. 
I'm not going after the message. Here's the NIV. Watch closely. Another thing you do. You flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because He no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. So who's doing the crying, weeping, and wailing in the NIV? The men. Why are they weeping, crying, and wailing? Because God isn't receiving their sacrifices. No, it doesn't compute. Uh, Why isn't He receiving their sacrifices? They're crying because He isn't receiving their sacrifices. But why isn't He receiving their sacrifices? From their version. Who knows? Whose tears are they in a King James Bible? The women's. And what is the consequence of those tears? The consequence is God will not accept their offerings. Are you following with me or is this too hard? Do you know how much I would like to put these things on a screen? I am honoring those of you that don't think it's reverent for me to be able to teach better. I could help you so much to understand some of these things by showing it in front of your eyes. We are blessed to have a King James Bible. And I want you to love every word of them. The Jubilee Bible of 2000. Listen to this one. And once again, ye shall cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with crying out. For I shall not even look at the offering any more to receive a freewill offering from your hand. And once again ye shall... Referring to the... What are they talking about? I love the way that we have verse 13. And this have ye done again. You men have done this in addition to hurting your brothers and profaning the holiness of the Lord and breaking the covenant that Moses made with you that you would never marry pagan wives. In addition to that, you've covered my altar with tears insomuch that I will not receive your sacrifices. They're not the ones crying. It's their wives that are crying. They're offering, but God's not accepting their offering. Verse 14, Yet ye say, wherefore? Have you ever met people like this? Have you ever met people like this? That they're asked about their marriage? They're warned about their marriage? They're taught about their marriage? Who, me? Why are you picking on me? What do you mean? What do you mean? Wherefore? Wherefore? What are they crying for? What are those little crybabies crying for? Wherefore? Yet ye say, wherefore? Wherefore won't God receive their sacrifices? Why won't He receive us? Who cares the little girl's doing some whining? She was made for the man. The man wasn't made for her. You know, I believe that verse, but I don't believe the abuse of that verse. You should believe the verse, but not believe the abuse of it. Wherefore, the arrogance, the selfishness, the profanity, the treachery, the wickedness, to ask a question like that because they have no regard for the feelings of anyone else. They don't have regard for the feelings of the spouse, and they don't have regard for the feelings of the spouse's family, the brethren that they've betrayed by treachery. They don't have any feelings for God, yet they expect their sacrifice to be accepted by God by going off and marrying the daughter of a strange God? Why won't you accept our sacrifices? I brought it the right time, the right place, the right way. So what? I've got a few problems at home. Because the Lord, here's why, 
because the Lord hath been witness. Now, when we get married, we have witnesses. You know, the crowd that is there, we have them to be witnesses that we covenant to treat our spouse a certain way. And see, then they're no longer witnesses because they're, they're locked out. You know, close the door at night, close the bedroom door, turn the lights off. You know, we have our own email accounts and we text in phone numbers and so forth and we delete texts and, you know, everybody, and all the witnesses are gone, but they're not gone. The only witness that counts is bigger than ever. Right, and it's God Himself. Because the Lord, the Lord Jehovah, hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, that little teenage girl that you took and promised that you would love forever, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously by not treating her every day the way that you promised you would treat her every day. I would never do that to you. I would never be that critical of you if we were to get married. You know, our parents are so critical of each other. I would never do that to you because I love you and I'll love you forever. Then it's treachery. So we've got to remember from whence we are fallen, repent and do the first works because there's a witness that sees everything in our home. Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, you have not fulfilled what you promised. You are mistreating her and hurting her, yet in my sight is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. The marriage covenant that you made, you can't get rid of it. She is still your wife and you better be treating her properly. I love the Y and T pronouns in the Bible. Remember, a Y pronoun is plural. A T pronoun is singular in the second person. So when the verse starts off, yet ye say, he's addressing all the men. But then he quickly goes to each man on an individual basis by nine, nine singular second person pronouns in verse 14. Yet ye say, wherefore? Because the Lord hath been witness between thee, Number one, and the wife, number two, of thy youth, number three, against whom, four, thou, we'll go ahead and throw those together, hast dealt treacherously, yet is she, five, thy sixth companion, and the wife, eight, of thy covenant, nine. If I got confused in there, forgive me, preaching and counting at the same time can, is sometimes like, anyway, you know, it short circuits. But I love this. Do you see? Do you see how the Lord has boiled it down with nine singular T pronouns to get oh, and a W for that wife? It's not wives, is it? It's not wives. It's wife. That wife of thy youth, the one that you love, the one that you promised the rest of your life to, the one that you promised everything to, in order to get her to throw away her life as your wife. And all oh, the girls do the same thing. Oh, I'll always love you. I'm only yours. I want to have your baby. On and on they go. But the Lord sees it all. So he's the witness and he's the one that we want to remember. Sees everything. Oh Lord, help us to remember that you see everything in our marriages and let us adjust accordingly. The treachery is these men not living up to what they had promised. 
Let's go to verse 15. And did not he make one? We have nine, nine singular nouns and pronouns in verse 14. And immediately the Lord asks through the prophet, and did not he make one? One man, one woman for one marriage. One man for one woman for one life together. It's a permanent relationship. It's only between two people. They're specifically identified by singulars nine times in that 14th verse. And did not he make one? This is why Genesis 2 is so important. There's an appeal being made to Genesis 1. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, be cleave unto his wife, singular, and they too shall be one flesh. That is a marriage. Two become one. And that's it. There's not a third. There's not a third later. There's not a third to be added to it. You get the third later when you divorce by bringing in a third. You get the third at the same time when you practice polygamy. Both of them were against God's creation ordinance. You say, but God allowed polygamy. Yes. And he allowed the high places to remain under the reign of Asa. But they were still wrong. God did it for the hardness of men's hearts. He corralled men in their wickedness by putting up constraints that would keep them from worse wickedness. He allowed them to have a second wife. And so in Exodus chapter 21, he told them how they had to treat the second wife. But that was not his plan for them. And for their kings, he specifically said, you may not multiply wives. And when we get to the New Testament, even if we lived in Saudi Arabia, the bishops and deacons of a church can only have one wife. It doesn't matter what the law of the land is about polygamy. God's men, who are supposed to exemplify and illustrate His His will and His word for people, can only have one wife. The husband of one wife, it says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, two times and one time in Titus chapter 1. And did not He make one? Yet had he the residue of the Spirit. The residue. He had some leftover Spirit. Isn't that... I love a God that is able to talk about leftover Spirit. You know, Spirit's pretty neat stuff. Do you have one? Oh, good. I heard some noise from you. You have one. It's inside. He had the residue of it. He breathed into that bunch of clay, that dust that he brought together, and Adam became a living soul when he breathed into him the breath of life. Then he pulled a rib out and made a woman. You know, he didn't breathe into her the same way. He made her from Adam's rib because there were already two inside him. In, in God's view of things, he had made the male and female in Adam. There was one man there. That was one family unit. And that was it in Genesis chapter 2. But then he had the residue of the spirit. He had some leftover spirit. What do I want to do with this leftover spirit? Well, off into the universe it went. Because he didn't make... Raquel. He didn't make Debbie. He made Eve. Yet had he the residue of the Spirit. I love the... He gets so specific. The Lord is so personal, so specific, so scriptural, so condemning of anyone mistreating their wife. And he's going back to Genesis 2. He's pulling Genesis 2 in. He's pulling Exodus 34 in. You have violated the covenant of your fathers. You are mistreating one another. You are mistreating fathers. You are mistreating brothers. And wherefore one? Wherefore one? Why did God make one and just blow the rest of that residue off into the universe and not use it, is my point. 
Why? That he might seek a godly seed. Because polygamy and divorce destroy families and children, plain and simple. Therefore, take heed to your spirit. We're going to get that twice in these last two verses. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. That singular wife that you married when you were young and you promised her the rest of your life. And my will for you is for you to be her husband for the rest of your life. And she to be your loving wife for the rest of your life. Because the Lord... When he had the chance to make Adam and Eve, he made one woman for that one man that became one family unit. Those two became one. There was no third. There isn't supposed to be a third later. There isn't supposed to be a third, fourth, fifth at that time. The Lord Jesus Christ taught the exception of fornication in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. The Apostle Paul taught the exception of desertion in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I believe both of those exceptions, and I believe principles of mercy and righteousness and intent from Matthew chapter 12 and Mark chapter 2, but you're going to divorce over my dead body. I will oppose you tooth and nail with every bit of wit and wisdom I have and every bit of authority and power I have. I will bring every, every single influence I can bring to bear on anyone that even thinks that they can justify a divorce in this assembly. The Word of God is telling you what to do, and it tells you in Revelation 2.5, Remember from whence thou art fallen. Remember what it used to be like and how you used to treat your spouse. Repent that you're not doing those things right now, and do the first works, meaning go back and do those things over again, and it'll work. It's that simple. That's how you restore first love. It can be done very quickly. It can be done today. It can be done before the sun sets today. Remember from whence thou art fallen. Repent and do the first works. I love the Word of God. Amen. Now, it's harder to do it than to preach it. So we've all got to go home and do it. And did not he make one? Yes, he did. He made one. He made one relationship from two people. He made one woman for one man. You can look at the one any way you want to from Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 24. Yet had he the residue of the Spirit. This is a statement of fact that God is telling you that he had more Spirit left over, that he wasn't limited in just getting one woman out for, for Adam that this idea of Solomon being able to have a different woman every night for three years is not his plan. They, Lo, I made man upright, but he sought out many inventions, and polygamy was one of them. And wherefore one? Why did God do it? That he might seek a godly seed. We all know that a divorce, what we call a broke, they come from a, have you ever heard, they come from a broken family? Right. We use that expression because the family broke. And children from a broken family have problems. They have handicaps. They don't develop and grow up the way that other children do. And so we have the warning here. Polygamy. Oh, did Isaac and Ishmael get along well? Did they not get along well at all? Did Ishmael despise Isaac? Did David's sons get along well? Oh, what a happy family David had. When he sat at the supper table and his 20 wives lined up with their 80 children... And all the boys are figuring, when am I going to kill him? And so they did. When can I rape my sister? Because she's only my half-sister. It doesn't really count. Uh, unbelievable. That he might seek a godly seed. Do you know that it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 12 through 16, it says that when a person is married to an unbeliever, they shouldn't divorce them, they shouldn't leave them. 
They should embrace that unbeliever. As long as that unbeliever wants to stay married, they should stay married to them. If that unbeliever doesn't want them anymore, then they are not bound by that marriage. They are not under bondage in such a case where the unbeliever wants to disappear for religious purposes and just desert the marriage. But if they want to remain married, if they want to dwell with you, then you are supposed to stay with them. And it goes on to say that the believing spouse sanctifies the marriage and sanctifies the unbeliever and sanctifies the children because it puts it in a marriage that is like the pattern God made in Genesis chapter 2 even though there's an unbeliever in it. Because you didn't enter in with that unbeliever after you knew better, you entered in with that unbeliever when you were an unbeliever and you were converted and you couldn't go back. So you make the best of it. And you know what God said? It makes your children holy. Holy? Does it sanctify them and send them to heaven? No. It puts them in a legitimate marriage that I have a, I can bless. Because they're not illegitimate children. They're not bastards without one of their parents. So stay married to that idolater in the city of Corinth. More on that at some other time, but I hope I said enough so that you can match up with these words right here, that he might seek a godly seed. Therefore, take heed to your spirit. Where do all problems come from in marriages? Our hearts. Every one of them. Pride, selfishness, rebellion, laziness. You know, it comes out of our heart. Marriage comes out of our hearts, so it says. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously against the wife, singular, of his youth. That woman that you've promised everything to. That woman you told the Lord you were going to treat a certain way. That woman in this church that you signed three pages of detailed promises that God's given us in his word. That is what you should be doing. Take heed to your spirit. Don't let your spirit well up against you. It does in men. So it says in Proverbs 5.19, But let her be as the loving hind in pleasant row. That is an order on your spirit. Let your wife be the loving hind in pleasant row. A little pet deer. Let her breasts satisfy thee at all times. Be thou ravished always with her love. That starts right here because it is a choice in all three clauses. Let her be as the loving hind in pleasant row. Let her breast satisfy thee at all times. Be thou ravished always with her love. Choice of spirit. Colossians 3.19 Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Oh, the Lord knows us. Oh, I've told you men when we've had men's meetings, you know, those are two of the hardest verses in the Bible for men. Proverbs 5.19 knows that in our heart we fantasize. We want something different. We want something better. Therefore, take heed to your spirit. She disappoints us. She frustrates us. So we get bitter. And there's the Word of God again, Colossians 3.19. Oh, the Word of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Verse 16. Oh, Verse 15. Look at your Bibles. Listen to this one. And did not he make one? Are you there? Look at your Bible and listen to what I read from the NIV. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard. Well, how does he get the godly offspring? By one man being committed to one woman for one life together. Can you believe it? Are you, is any, any, any young man that wants to get upset about this stuff 
and start crawling out of your pew, you'll excite my heart because I'm I messed up over it. If they do that to the text, what do you think they're going to do to the interpretation of it and the application? Did that steal the power of Genesis 2 away? Unbelievable. How about the NASB? You know, that's the one closest to the originals Bob Jones teaches. Listen to this. Look carefully. I wish I had a slide. I love all of you, even the ones that don't like slides. But not one... Oh, I can hardly read it. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. This is the NASB, the New American Standard Bible. Look at your Bible. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? The Net Bible. No one who has even a small portion of the Spirit in him does this. Oh, what did our ancestor do when seeking a child from God? Well, I guess they went to bed. You know, I'm reading the Bible. This is unbelievable, isn't it? Are you getting upset? I can't. No wonder there's divorces everywhere. In churches. Joel Osteen is never going to preach Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, I promise you. Here's my arm. Bring a chainsaw in here. When Joel Osteen preaches Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. The Dewey Reims, the Catholics, did not one make her? And she is the residue of his spirit. It takes away the whole argument against polygamy. Anyway, oh, here's, here's Young's literal translation. Hold on. And he did not make one only. Look at your Bible and listen. Young's literal translation. And he did not make one only. And he hath the remnant of the Spirit. And what is the one alone? You know, you need to add some friends. He, unbelievable. I'm sitting in my office. What do we do? We live in the perilous times of the last days. They're corrupting the text. Forget the interpretation. Let's go to verse 16 and finish this. I'm sorry. Thank you for your kind attention. For the Lord, I have lots that, for the Lord's good to us. For the Lord, that's Jehovah, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. You men that have promised your lives to these wives that you married in your youth and how you were going to take care of them and always dote on them and love them, the Lord hateth the putting away. For one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit that ye deal not treacherously. You can obviously understand the whole verse except for that clause in the middle. For one covereth violence with his garment. Where's the violence? It's men mistreating their wives. How are they covering it? Do you know the expression in the Bible? Like the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says, I did not come to you with a cloak of maliciousness, a cloak of covetousness. When you have a bribe for somebody, do you hold it out here as you walk into the, into the, uh, the court building? Do you hold it out here? Or like this? Or is it in here? Does the Bible say that it's in here? Does the Bible say a gift from the bosom corrupts justice? See the garment? Okay, the garment is men using the Word of God to justify polygamy and justify divorce. 
One, for one covereth violence with his garment. So the Lord God just comes out and says, what is in this chapter described, I hate. It doesn't mean he hates all divorce. Because he told Abraham to divorce Ishmael, uh, Hagar and send Ishmael away. You read Ezra chapter 9. There was a national day of divorce. God doesn't hate every divorce. God certainly hates the divorces here. And any, ver- any divorces that are like these here. But the point being, men appeal to Scripture to justify their polygamy and their divorce. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus said, Have ye not read from the beginning? And he quoted Genesis chapter 2. And the Pharisees come up so piously and say, but what about Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4? From the beginning, it was not so. Moses, for the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. And see, when those Pharisees would go use Deuteronomy 24 to satisfy their consciences and to satisfy the courts, they were covering their violence as with a garment. The garment being God's word. Misusing it. Misapplying it. We are not going to be partial in God's word like that. God hates divorce where there's violence involved. The violence is you promise that spouse certain behavior and you are going to keep it. And you are not going to get out of it by quoting Deuteronomy 24 or or looking at Abraham's life of two wives at the same time or Jacob's wife life of four wives at the same time or David or Solomon or any of them. You're not going to be able to cover yourself Therefore, take heed to your spirit. Don't even be thinking in that direction that ye deal not treacherously. Treachery, is to, treachery here is to promise these little girls, promise these young men that you're going to love them, treat them, be loyal, faithful, reverent. All the things that you promised, all the things that you wrote down and signed in your marriage covenant, then you don't do it. That is so corrupt. That is so wicked. Lord, help us. Let us all go home today and do better. Let us all go home and take heed to our spirit that we treat our spouse in the way that we love them in the beginning. And the Bible tells us we can do it. Do you want to hear the 16th verse from a couple different versions? Look at it. Look at the words and open your ears. Do way reams. It says, for the our Bible says, for the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. For one covereth violence with his garment. Okay, the the Catholic Bible. About the time of the King James. When thou shalt hate her, put her away. If I had something to put a javelin through in my office, I would have. (laughs) When thou shalt hate her, put her away, saith the Lord God of Israel. But iniquity shall cover his garment. Young's Literal. For I hate sending away, said Jehovah, God of Israel, and he who hath covered violence with his clothing, said Jehovah of of hosts. The NASB, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong. How do you cover your garment with wrong? The NIV, The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect. So it misses the whole garment thing. And on and on it goes. Is that, is that terrible? Yeah. They can't get the text right because they don't have the text. We love every word of God. Right. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. You Jewish men, you want a bottom line to what's going on in Israel? The Lord hates it. For one covereth violence with his garment. You're just making a, a show of Scripture 
trying to cover your violence, your treachery, your abomination toward that little girl that you married. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you deal not treacherously. And so we have this wonderful prophet, the prophet Malachi, the final warning to Israel, ten lessons, four chapters. We've covered four of them. May God bless the preaching of his word to bear fruit in our lives to go out of here. Remember that we have a covenant. It's not so much a covenant of our fathers, like Exodus 34 was, between an Israelite and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses. It's a covenant that you all made before the Lord, the holy angels, and an assembled company of people that you are going to treat your spouse a certain way, and it is detailed there from the word of God. You promised you would do it. You made many promises even leading up to that public day of commitment. And if you don't keep it, you are treacherous. You are a traitorous betrayer. You are wicked. What is it? Is it laziness, selfishness, rebellion, or pride? Or all four? What is it? There is nothing else. It has nothing to do with what your spouse is doing towards you. In your covenant, you said, I will treat my spouse this way regardless of how my spouse treats me because that is what the Bible teaches. May the Lord bless us to fulfill our covenants. May the Lord bless us to fulfill these covenants. May the Lord bless us to take heed to our spirits. May the Lord bless us not to try to cover violence with any show, any use of Scripture like she was made for me. I wasn't made for her. May the Lord bless us with fruit that we will not have any treachery in our marriages. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.